true crime fans, you've come to the right place in the right podcast. All rise with Diane Godfrey. I'm Diane's faithful companion on this podcast adventure. My name is Jordan Rich, Boston area podcaster and broadcaster. And on today's episode, the esteemed attorney, Elliot Levine, was here to talk about the insanity defense, something we all need to learn a lot more about. And Elliot has asked a former client to join us as well. We'll use his first name only. So let's get into it with Elliot Levine. Diane Godfrey, take it away. Hi, Elliot. Hi, Diane. Good to see you. You too. Thank you for coming on. And I'd like to introduce you to our audience. This is attorney Elliot Levine. I have known Elliot for as long as I've been court reporting, but I haven't, I don't know you really, really well. We've seen each other oodles of times and we've done a lot of cases together. Lately, we did a murder trial in December of 2021. We had been talking about the podcast and I asked you if you'd be kind enough to come on and you graciously accepted the invitation. So here we are. I know that you had indicated that you have two cases in mind that you thought you might share. And I believe if I'm not mistaken, you indicated that the defense on those two cases was Uh, uh, insanity defense or also known as lack of criminal responsibility. That, there's what I, I knew it was insanity, by not guilty by reason of insanity, but I forgot the other part of it. But you know, Elliot, I've been kicking around a long time in the courts and I've seen this, but not often. And is it still a viable defense in some, in some instances? Well, the reason you haven't seen it very often is because it is not a viable defense. Uh, the one case that I, one of the cases I will talk about is one that I won Pat was my client in the case, and in that case, uh, the Boston Globe wrote it up as the first successful Vietnam post-traumatic stress disorder case ever successful in the state courts of Massachusetts, and the Boston Globe wrote it up as it was the first insanity case of any kind successful in front of a jury in a 10-year period. That would suggest and indicate that insanity cases are hardly ever successful. Hence why I barely ever see them. Although, can I just give the audience a little background? You just said you won the case and your client's name was Pat. And Pat is here with us today also. Hello, Pat. Hello. There we go. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what the situation was and why you decided to go that route? That's kind of gutsy as a lawyer, isn't it? Well, considering the lack of winnability of insanity cases, it would be seen as somewhat gutsy. In this case, that was the right option, and it was the only option offered to us. Uh, And I can go on with that uh, as you would like. Okay, well, if you can tell us what the allegations were, and and just to repeat, you got a not guilty. That is correct. So how many years ago was it? This was back in 1988 that the case went Can you tell us what the allegations were? Yes. Uh, Pat was charged with a robbery of a convenience store uh, uh-huh. where thousands of dollars were stolen from the convenience store. Uh, he was stopped by the police as he was uh, fleeing the crime. Uh, he had a a person was driving the car. That person was also charged as a co-conspirator, as an aider and a better, or as the getaway driver. Does that mean joint venture? 
That means joint venture. Exactly. Is that still a viable? I see that thing kicking around in the court. Hasn't the law changed with that? Joint venture is still, uh, one can still be prosecuted for joint venture. You have to prove that the person knew what was happening and that, that the person shared the intent. Well, wouldn't that be implicit with driving a getaway car? I'm just playing devil's advocate it, here. It, it would, yes. In terms of this case, in that our defense was that it was a flashback on the part of uh, Pat to Vietnam on his the anniversary of his discharge date, that it in that it happened as a flashback when he was in the convenience store and not before, our argument was that the co-defendant should not have been found guilty. However, the co-defendant was found guilty. Uh, Pat was found not guilty. Pat, would you like to weigh in and tell us your story? Well, my story is that I was fortunate enough to have Elliot represent me on a court-appointed basis, a million-dollar defense, and he was the most tenacious attorney, the best attorney, was ever graced a courtroom, and he saved my life. Can I jump in and ask a question of you, Pat, just for background? Uh, your Vietnam experience, when you were in Vietnam, and obviously you were in theater, yeah. what traumatic episodes ring true for you? I mean, you don't have to go into great detail, but what was your experience like? I was there from April 69 to April 70, infantry, numerous mortar attacks, ambushes, booby traps. By the way, thank you for your service. Yeah, I you're welcome. every vet. I mean, you're welcome. Have you ever been back to Vietnam? It's now a, a, a very sh chic uh, destination to vacation. <laughs> no. <laughs> I can tell you, I went through Vietnam about 11 years ago. I went from top to bottom. Yeah. I saw it. And there's a lot, you know, they have a lot of um, the tanks, the American tanks and the American planes. They have a museum, but things are just stuck in time. They're just sitting like in the middle of the woods. They haven't moved them. So. I, just, I just would like to add one thing. Uh-huh. Through Elliot's representation, he illuminated to the jury and everybody in the courtroom the pinpoint description of society's indifference towards the Vietnam vets when they came home, the high suicide rate. Agent Orange. Yeah, all of that. And uh, I came on this show to thank him once again for all he's done for me and to thank him more so for the light he shed on all the guys that were in that horrible war that still have problems to this day. And Elliot, I know you want to jump in here, but I was just curious what your experience or background was with what was called PTSD. I don't even know if it was called that at that point. Well, before I became an attorney, I was a psychologist. I have a master's degree in psychology. I have a year's credit toward a PhD. Uh, I worked at a hospital on the psychiatric ward while going to law school at night, and I did that for four years. So I have a very uh, extensive background in the mental health field. Um, I also wanted to add in terms of Pat, he received uh, in Vietnam a, a Purple Heart. He had been wounded in combat. <clears throat> he also received an infantryman's combat badge, which requires 30 consecutive days of active combat. That is a traumatic experience for anyone. I might add that in my cross-examination of the government's expert, uh, I was able to bring out, doctor, 
30 days of active combat would be a stressful situation that is likely to cause post-traumatic stress disorder in anyone. Isn't that correct? Even in you, had you served in Vietnam. So I was able to bring that out and highlight that to the jury. Also, when Pat said about suicides, the research has shown that more people died that served actively in Vietnam from suicide than people that were actually killed in active combat in Vietnam. That's a staggering uh, statistic. I had two uh, medical expert witnesses. One was a person who is head of the post-traumatic stress disorder at the Boston VA. And he was one of the people that actually defined post-traumatic stress disorder for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Other experts that I had uh, was former commissioner of mental health for New York State, former president of the American Psychiatric Association, and the Mental Health Center at Columbia University is in his name as an honor to him. Uh, he was a major player in post-traumatic post stress disorder. Uh, and what I was starting to say is in terms of post-traumatic stress disorder, more Vietnam veterans of active combat actually committed suicide more so then died on the battlefield in Vietnam. So I was able to bring that out. Pat was highly decorated in Vietnam. He was in active combat. And anything else Pat wants to add, uh, he's free to do so. Pat, I'd like to know what your life was like, what, if you remember, before this uh, criminal charge, before this incident. You obviously, you know, needed help and people weren't giving help to veterans at that point. What was life like for you prior to this? It was disappointing. I was living with a girl who came forward and gave very brave testimony about a shattered life, if you will. Elliot got to know her quite well. And, uh... All the time since I came home in April of 1970, up to this incident, it took the longest time for things to be put into place for Vietnam vets, logistically, medically, economically. The air of indifference towards us had slowly but surely ebbed away, so to speak. I guess that's the best way I can say it. Uh, in terms of Pat's girlfriend at the time who testified, she testified how he would wake up in the middle of the night screaming in a sweat and the tremendous mood swings that he had, all symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Coming up, more of the All Rise podcast after this message. When you or a loved one needs a criminal defense attorney, go right to the very best. Call the offices of Elliot Levine Esquire. Elliot Levine has been assisting clients in the greater Boston area since 1980 with offices in Cambridge and Quincy. He has successfully tried many life felony cases throughout Massachusetts and handles cases at the superior, district, and appellate court levels. Attorney Elliot Levine always puts his clients first, taking the time to explain the issues and options in plain English, and he makes sure his clients feel comfortable with his advocacy every step of the way as their case progresses. Tip the scale in your favor. Call criminal defense attorney Elliot Levine, 617-669-2254. Again, that's 617-669-2254. Or you can email him, elliotlevine at gmail.com. That's E-L-L-I-O-T-R-L-E-V-I-N-E -L -L -E at gmail.com.
Elliot Levine for the defense. And now back to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. Elliot, how long did this case go? Did you tell me off the air it was Judge Heard? I did. It was Judge Heard. And how long was the case? Um, It it would have lasted about two weeks. Wow, that's a long time. But, um, you know, it saddens me as as you and Pat are speaking, I think of down at the Washington Mall when you see the Vietnam vets and they're there and it's heartbreaking. They're living in tents and they're milling around and they just, he, Pat nailed it. It's like they aren't, they weren't given their due, you know, consideration. They weren't, uh, they certainly did not have a hero's welcome when they came back. Uh, The country was very divided. They were treated with hostility. Uh, Some Vietnam vets were actually spit on when they came back. Uh, So it was a terrible time for Vietnam vets. And one of the things that I brought out in the trial that was interesting is they had, when they went in, they knew what their discharge date would be. It was called the DERO state, D-E-R-O. And it was one year from the date that they went in. That meant, and the reason for that is the mental health professionals thought that would solve the problem of uh, war neuroses that uh, Korean War veterans and World War II veterans had. Uh, But it turned out to be a disaster because it meant that each Vietnam veteran went home on his date, leaving his buddies behind. Mm -hmm. They didn't go back as a group, as a unit. So it left them Uh, With their buddies still fighting in Vietnam, potentially to die, many of their buddies did die. And as a result, the Vietnam veterans had what was referred to as survival guilt. Why did I live when my buddies died? That was part of the trauma that they experienced after uh, coming back from Vietnam. And this case uh, happened on the Pat's discharge date, it was on the anniversary of his discharge date, which added to the psychological trauma. And our defense was that he was in a dissociative state at the time, therefore lacked criminal responsibility because uh, being in a dissociative state is a mental illness. Do you remember how long they deliberated? Do you have any idea, any recollection, how long the jury was out? Uh, I don't. Maybe Pat knows the answer to that. I do. It was uh, over two days, about eight hours. You must have been on pins and needles. Uh, I was kind of numb, to be honest. Do you mind me asking, like, when you decided to, I'd just like to get an inside, like, view of, what was your thought process when you decided to rob a convenience store? Because it sounds like an isolated event and just a bad decision on your part that one time. Like, what if, was I, if I may answer that, Pat can certainly jump in. When he sure. went into the convenience store, he had no intent to rob it. It was a flashback that happened uh, while he was in the convenience store and he did it. He ran out with money and began throwing the money onto the street with the car window open. He was throwing money out the car window. Uh, His behavior was very bizarre at that time. So he wasn't stealing it to have the money to get away to buy something. He was having like a moment of 
what I don't know what you'd call it. A moment of insanity. Uh, uh, there may have been a wanting to get caught and to be punished. Lots of psychological dynamics could have been happening at that time. But Pat can answer anything further regarding that. Uh, Pat, I have a question again for you, and that is in prior anniversaries, because obviously you'd been out of Vietnam for a while, uh, mm. had, had you had other issues with that particular date, that anniversary date, do you remember? No, but it's not a very cheery event, uh, to say the least. Mm -hmm. Well, you couldn't have, have had a better person in your corner than Elliot, for oh, sure. I know that. He's, he's the best lawyer that's ever graced a courtroom. <laughs> Before, well, I think he's, yeah, before he's now, forever. Yeah, Certainly. I think he's pretty terrific. I've seen him in action. Um, so okay. I think if there's anything else you'd like to add about the case, other than that, we can move on to the other case you wanted to talk about. Uh, the, the, that'd be fine. Just a few summary kind of things. Of course. The, government, the government's expert uh, in my cross-examination of him, which lasted about four and a half hours. Uh, <laughs> I was, was he a physician? Do you mind me asking? What was he? Uh, a, a, a psychiatrist, psychiatrist. A, a medical doctor. Okay. I was able to bring out that he testified almost exclusively for the government, not for defendants. Uh, he was not published in post-traumatic stress disorder. He never lectured in post-traumatic stress disorder. He made a diagnosis of Pat as being an antisocial personality. Hmm. I was able to bring out to be an antisocial personality requires that there be criminal-like conduct uh, prior to prior to the age of 15. And Pat had no history of antisocial behavior prior to uh, going to Vietnam. Uh, so his diagnosis, I was able to bring out to the jury, was an incorrect diagnosis. And the last question I asked him was, doctor, you really don't know very much about post-traumatic stress disorder, do you? And he said, I guess not. Well, how new was that PTSD back then in 80, what'd you say, 88? In, in 88, uh, it had been around for a while a psychologist from Cleveland State University is the first person to coin the label of post-traumatic stress disorder. And by the time our case went to trial, it was listed as a mental illness in the diagnostic manual used by all mental health professionals. You mentioned that the physician was from Cleveland and isn't that your home city? No. Oh, there, there was a psychologist from Cleveland who, uh, came up with the term post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, yes, I am from Cleveland. How did I wind up coming to Boston? Uh, I was offered a teaching fellowship at, at Harvard Law School. And you liked it so much you stayed. I liked it so much that when I went back to Cleveland, where I was head trial attorney for a law firm in Cleveland doing all the litigation work, after a period of time, I decided I want to go back to Boston. I came back and I opened my own practice in Boston. That's nice. You have offices in Cambridge and in Quincy, I believe. That is correct. So there was one other case that you wanted to speak about, and I believe you used the same defense, not guilty by reason of insanity. Is that correct? That is correct. Can you tell us what happened in that case? 
Yes, that that was a case where my client was the beloved pharmacist in a small New England town. He was charged with strangling his wife to death. She, our defense was battered husband syndrome case. There was a history of her having battered him. She had fallen in love with a visiting priest from Portugal. She had made matching bikini bathing suits for herself and the priest. She did a portrait of the priest that she hung over her wall, uh, over the mantel. Uh, she had her husband, who was a very passive guy, convert a room into a guest room that the priest could stay at periodically. And she was threatening to buy a love nest farmhouse uh, uh, that she would inhabit with, with the priest in the state of Vermont. Uh, and in that case, uh, had it gone to trial, their children would have testified as to how many times they had witnessed her physically abusing her husband as well as verbally abusing. Uh, there was a treating psychologist that saw her extreme hostility toward her husband. She had earlier in her life wanted to be a nun. Uh, she remained and her husband uh, were friends with the head nun at the convent. That none would have testified about her abusive behavior and she was not allowed to become a nun because of her volatile, explosive personality. Uh, so that's basically the background of that case. Uh, so what was the crime? Like, how did that occur? When did, like, what, what happened the day of the... That night, uh, her husband had fallen asleep on the couch. The TV was going. She woke up as a result of the TV, finds him on the couch, begins beating him. The next thing he knows is he is trying to wake her up, can't wake her up. And when she is examined, it was determined that she was strangled to death and strangled to death by her husband. So that would make him insane? Well, our defense was a battered husband syndrome in that he was uh, temporarily insane at the time. Um, the case itself sounds pretty insane. I mean, the wife and the priest, I mean, that sounds like Looney Tunes. <laughs> uh, it, it was Looney Tunes. And in terms of that, um, uh, 60 Minutes was interested in covering the case, had it gone to trial. Uh, a newspaper offered me $20,000 for an exclusive on the case, which we did not accept. Had the case gone to trial with a not guilty finding, this probably would have been a book and a movie. Mm. Uh, uh, it did not go to trial. And it's an example of how an attorney's obligation is first and foremost to his client and not to self-interest. The case did not go to trial in a lobby conference uh, with the judge and the district attorney, meaning in the judge's chambers. The judge said is his unwillingness to make a commitment on a 
on a sentence holding my client back. I said, absolutely not. My client would plead guilty to anything. It's holding me back because he has a very viable insanity defense. He is beloved in the community. There's tremendous community support behind him. Uh, and I said to the judge, let me suggest this. I have a report from a psychologist who's an expert on post-traumatic stress disorder. I have a report from a psychiatrist whose credentials are incredible. And also I have a report from the treating psychologist. Let me suggest to th this to you, Judge, that you look at those reports and see if you can bend and break your rule and make a commitment. He read all the reports, called us back into his office, and said, if your client pleads guilty to manslaughter, which is what the offer was, I will give him a three-year sentence. It would be two years to serve in minimum security. He would be, after one year, eligible for work release. You can't say, you can't turn that down, considering if you go to trial and you lose, uh, it would be life in prison on a murder case. We instantly took that case, and that ended any chance of a book, any chance of a movie, uh, and it was clearly the right thing to do for that client. This case was a number of years ago. He has sadly since passed away from natural causes. Wow. Well, you know, it reminds me of that movie with Farrah Fawcett, The Burning Bed. Does anyone remember that? Oh, yeah. I her husband I, was an abuser, and then she lit him on fire one night when he was in the bed. Do you remember that movie? Uh, I know of the movie. It reminds me, as you're speaking, it reminds me of that. Yes. Though I'm a movie buff, that's one movie that I haven't seen. Well, you've got a kindred spirit there, because Elliot, your friend here, Jordan, is a movie buff. Oh, yeah. But but it, it sounds, that story, and, and I even heard Pat chuckling a little bit, because it's so <laughs> absurd to think that... This happened in this man's house um, among his stuff. I mean, just crazy. But it, it, I think let's just zero in on, on the point that we made up with this podcast. And Diane, this is a fabulous topic. Um, it's so rare to get the insanity defense uh, adjudicated the way it is. And it's a credit to – I think you're – Credit to your occupation, uh, Elliot, because of your background, not only as an attorney, but as a psychiatrist, a psychologist, I should say. Thank you. Thank you. Because I, I can't think of a better equipped attorney in this case to handle a case like that. Can you, Diane? No. And I'm so glad. And Elliot, see the things I'm finding out that I had no idea <laughs> that you had all that background in the psychologist field. Just, so, just keep probing. You'll find more. <laughs> hey, Ellie, you know what I wanted to ask you? I want to jog your memory. Were you on a case, I think it was, think back to like 25 years ago, Norfolk Superior Court Dedham, courtroom three, Judge Conley. The DA was Susan Corcoran. And in the middle of the trial, an exhibit went missing. It was a photograph. Do you remember that? I can't remember the defendant, but it was a big brouhaha. There was one, I think it was you. Does that sound familiar? It, it does not sound familiar, but if a photograph is missing uh, in that the government has control over the exhibits, 
there would be an argument to dismiss the case because potential helpful evidence uh, has been lost. Uh, but I, I have no memory of the case. I don't think it was my case. Well, the reason I ask, I thought it was you, but Judge Conley was like a hornet. He was yelling at everyone. And I was new. I mean, I hadn't been around that long. And I was so intimidated by him. And because I wasn't working for the state, I was a vendor, so to speak, a per diem. The materials from the day before when the supposed exhibit got marked were at my house 15 minutes away. And he put me in a state police car and had the state police bring me to my house. I was shaking like a leaf. And then when I came back, he called me in chambers and I had to read him the part where I did, in fact, put that in evidence. And it was like the biggest thing. And they they said that maybe where the exhibits were, it inadvertently fell into the trash can. I don't know if you that it just doesn't ring to you. You brought I swore it was you. Maybe it wasn't. I should look that up. I don't remember. Diane's got a memory like a sieve, basically. She doesn't forget oh. anything. And you know what? It's probably because his hair was darker. But maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> I have no memory of that. And I like to think that I have, or at least had, before my hair got gray, a steel trap mind. I don't think that's the case. Any last things that you wanted to add about, uh, you know, that type of a defense? Not guilty by reason of insanity? Well, no, I've already said that it's hardly ever brought before the court. Is very rare that they're successful. You would ask me about is it is the insanity defense used in all states? There are five states that do not now use or accept an insanity defense. Are more states going to follow suit and dump that type of a? Uh, I I hope not. Uh, I have no way to know. And considering that insanity defenses are so rare, so rarely successful, uh, I don't see why states should be doing away with an insanity defense. Can you think of any offhand that would be like a celebrity or a celebrated case that everyone would know that that was utilized successfully? Well, it, it was utilized in when, uh, as I recall, when Ronald Reagan was shot, and that was an insanity defense. Hinkley. Wasn't yeah. his name Hinkley? Yeah, John Hinkley. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. See, I knew I heard it somewhere, but it, it's just so rare. It's very rare. And considering you've been a court stenographer for, what, 30 years? Plus, yeah, I hate to say it, but God, we're getting up there. Uh, and, and you have uh, never experienced an insanity case in front of a jury. Uh, that shows how rare it is. Yeah, I mean, I've heard dribs and drabs of it, but it's never really come to fruition. You know, I've never right. had a case like that. Without going into details, I have an insanity case pending right now in a uh, in one of the courts in Massachusetts. And um, if the case goes to trial, it will be not guilty by reason of insanity. Now, if the defendant is found not guilty by reason of insanity by a jury, does that mean he or she can turn on his or her heel and walk out? Or are there going to be sanctions imposed as far as mental health treatment? In Pat's case, uh, he was not committed to a psychiatric hospital. Most cases, if they're successful, the person goes to a psychiatric hospital and remains there until that person is deemed by the professionals to no longer be a danger to self or to others. So that can be anywhere from a day up to life, depending on 
what is determined, but the person has a right to constant rehearings in terms of whether or not he or she has been restored to sanity. That sounds like the same thing when they're sexually dangerous people. When they're ready to, they've done their time, uh -huh. they're ready to be let out onto the street and the Commonwealth will petition the court and say, I don't believe this individual, even though he's done his time, I don't think he should come out and, you know, be a part of society. And a jury trial will be, you know, put together and the jury decides whether or not the person is rehabbed or not. That's absolutely correct. And it's the same idea. And in those cases, usually it's two government witnesses that testify that the person is sexually dangerous. The defendant usually has two expert witnesses who determine that the person is safe to be on the streets, is no longer sexually dangerous. And then it's left uh, to a jury to decide. Yeah, to the citizens of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Right. They decide if the person's going to, you know, I often wondered how they can figure it out. There's, there's four doctors. Two of them say he's rehabbed and he can go out on the street. And the other two doctors say, uh-uh-uh, not ready. Has to stay, you know, in the confines of, you know, some sort of a locked facility of some sort. I can't figure out how they figure it out, to be honest. Well, in in part, it's how persuasive are the, are the doctors and in large part, it depends on how effective the attorneys are in advocating for their case and cross-examining the doctors on the opposite side. Well, Elliot, thank you so much. You're a wealth of information, and this was really enlightening and educational, and I learned something here today. I'm sure everybody else did. Is there anything else anyone wants to add? Yeah, I'd like to add something. Okay, Pat. He's a one-in-a-billion attorney. He's a one-in-a-billion friend. Pat and I get together uh, Pre-COVID, we've gotten together two, three times a year for, for lunch. So uh, Pat is somebody that I am extremely fond of. I consider him a friend. I am so glad that we were successful. Pat is a terrific human being. You're, you're in Quincy, Mass. and Cambridge, Mass. And for people that aren't local, Cambridge is a city just across the river. So we say in Boston, the Charles River. It's a city right across from Boston. And I just want to give a plug to one of my favorite places in Cambridge. It's technically not in Porter Square. It's just south of Porter Square. I was there yesterday and it's called Cambridge Clog Shop. It's next to Bagelsaurus. Bagels what is in those bagels? Every time I go by, there's <laughs> literally 30 people, even in freezing cold weather, they're outside waiting for these bagels. This clog shop is the people that run it. It's a mom and pop. And the reason I'm I'm stressing it is, number one, I love it so much. Among, I mean, Cambridge is one of my favorite places, but the customer service is second to none. And the girl and the guy that run it, they're just terrific. And they have, on either wall, hundreds and hundreds of the funkiest, coolest socks you can ever imagine. So if you're ever up in Porter Square, it's on Mass Ave, Cambridge Clogs. It's a very dear to my heart. I, I know the place. I go past it all the time. I think I even went in there once. Okay. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming on to the podcast. Thank you, Pat. Thank you, thank Elliot. I'm sure I'll see you around the campus soon. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Pat. Thanks, Elliot. This is Diane Godfrey. This podcast is meant for entertainment purposes only. If you need legal representation, please consult an attorney. I do not have a law degree. 
Over the years, many people have contacted me seeking legal advice. I am not qualified to dispense any legal advice. Before we close the courtroom door on this podcast, we remind you that All Rise with Diane Godfrey is available on all podcast platforms. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast. You've been listening to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse, from the lady who wrote everything down. Case dismissed.